Our first lesson is from the Gospel of Matthew. Let us hear the word of God. When they had come near Jerusalem and had, read, and had reached Bethphage at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village ahead of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, just say this, The Lord needs them and he will send them immediately. This took place to fulfill what had been spoken through the prophet, saying, Tell the daughter of Zion, Look for your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, and on a colt, the foal of a donkey. The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put their cloaks on them, and he sat on them. A very large crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. The crowds that went ahead of him and that followed were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David! Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord! Hosanna in the highest heaven! When he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was in turmoil, asking, Who is this? The crowds were saying, this is the prophet, Jesus, from Nazareth in Galilee. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. All right. How are we all doing? Good. All right. This holy week begins once again. Uh, palms are waved and the choir sings and we celebrate Jesus riding into Jerusalem in royal fashion. Uh, the crowds lauding him this morning. But we will gather around the, the Lord's table later in the service here, just as Jesus gathered with his disciples to celebrate the Passover. And we know what awaits Jesus outside the upper room. Torture and suffering and crucifixion. The one Israel hoped would be their salvation, dying publicly and painfully. The celebration here at Jesus' triumphal entry is contradicted by Jesus' suffering at the end of the week. The certainty of the crowds, their chanting and cheering declaration, here is our Messiah, the one we've been waiting for, loses its enthusiasm. The ones who cry out, blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord, will slink away later this week to hide in the shadows. I offer you three perspectives this morning. A sermon on the suffering servant who is the king in uh, three parts. The first account comes from an audio recording made 2,000 years ago. The suffering servant is the king, uh, part one. Now, the recording is a little scratchy, but you can still hear the eyewitness account if you listen carefully. Yeah, I remember Palm Sunday. What a day. I was there, you know. It's been a couple of years ago now, but I still remember the excitement of that day. Palm Sunday is what people call it now, because everyone waved those palm branches and laid their cloaks on the ground, celebrating Jesus and giving him the uh, red carpet treatment as he rode into Jerusalem on a donkey, uh, clear signs that this was the Messiah we'd been waiting for, the one who would save Israel and redeem Judah. Now, it was a festive atmosphere to begin with already. Everyone was in Jerusalem for Passover. 
We were staying out in Bethany on the other side of the Mount of Olives, you know. And every day we would walk into Jerusalem, walk past the squatters and the camps that sprang up every year at this time in the gardens and the fields and the Mount of Olives. Oh, I loved this time of year in Jerusalem and the, the area surrounding the city. How can I describe it? It was uh, one part state camp, uh, state campground on a long weekend. It was one part county fair, one part vibrant tent city, and one part annual religious convention. It was great. I mean, if, if you go in for that sort of thing, which I did. Well, this one morning, this Palm Sunday, we were heading up to Jerusalem where Jesus would teach in the temple like he did every morning. Only this morning, he sends some of us, some of his disciples on ahead to find a donkey for him to ride into town on. Well, let me tell you, it isn't just everybody who rides into town. Uh, you got to be pretty special. And when the people saw him up there on the donkey like a king coming home in peace and victory, well, you know, with the signs and wonders, with, with his miracles, you know, and with his teaching and authority, uh, you can't fault the people for joining in the excitement and throwing Jesus a, a ticker tape parade. Uh, never mind that the championship hadn't been won yet. This was their team. This was their guy, their Messiah, and they honored him, waving branches, laying their cloaks across the donkey and on the road before him. Such honors ascribed to Jesus that day. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord, they shouted. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest heaven. Well, little did we expect how that week would end. Some expected Jesus to declare himself right then and right there, to call down an army of angels to take back Jerusalem and cleanse Israel. I, I didn't know what to expect. The week that began, though, with such pomp and triumph would end badly. The crowds honored Jesus by declaring him king, but by the end of the week, he would hang under another sign, proclaiming him the king of the Jews, only this time, this sign would taunt him as he hung up on that cross. There is no more humiliating or shameful way to die. Those disciples who were so proud to align themselves with him at the beginning of the week were afraid and confused by the end of the week. Ashamed, I tell you, ashamed to be associated with Jesus. So that Peter, even Peter denied knowing Jesus three times in one night. It was a far cry from the joy of Palm Sunday. Our spirits fell, our hopes died, descended, uh, we descended into our worst nightmare. We'd been so hopeful, now we felt so ashamed. How could we have been taken in? How could we let ourselves hope that anything would change? That's, uh, that's what we were struggling with, hiding out behind locked doors at the end of that week. It looked like the week that had begun in glory and honor was going to end in embarrassment and shame. When Jesus was arrested in the garden, I'll tell you, we never expected that. We were ashamed and felt foolish for having believed that this might be the Messiah, for having put our hopes and trust in him. It was a low point, certainly, the way the week ended, but then, then we never expected what happened next either. What happened next, I'll tell you, convinced me more than ever that God's love eclipses all shame. We forgot pretty quickly the anguish of Christ crucified when we saw what came next. Uh, 
God's love eclipses all shame. God's love eclipses even death itself. Of course, we haven't got to that part of the story yet. That will wait until next week. But for now, let me tell you, we never expected what happened next. The suffering servant is the king, part two. God's love eclipses all shame. This is the story of a life transformed by the love of God. Uh, I'll read this account in first person uh, also. Again, taking on the persona uh, of this individual telling the story. Uh, God's love eclipses all shame. This I know to be true. I know God's love eclipses all shame because that's what happened to me. I am a witness of these things. This is how the good news of Jesus Christ came, uh, became real in my life, by setting aside shame and replacing it with value and worth. This is my uh, shame story. I came by shame, honestly enough. Uh, I inherited it, you see. Uh, mom grew up feeling like a burden on an impoverished family. The story that's still told around her birth uh, is that um, when her mom was expecting her, uh, a number neighbors, well-meaning family and friends, suggested that the family might want to give mom up to another family, uh, adopt her out to a family that could afford another child. Uh, quite an ignominious beginning in life. And think about how that story retold your whole life establishes uh, shame. So that was mom. Dad was the youngest child, youngest boy in a family of 11 children. He was the, uh, the clown and the cut-up, but his older siblings, uh, they never expected much from him. Dad never finished elementary school. Mom suffered clergy abuse. These are the things that combined to create a strong legacy of shame and low self-esteem. The four of us kids, we all inherited this shame in our own way. Low self-esteem manifesting in each of us in its own particular uh, shape and form. For me, it was extreme shyness and anxiety rooted in a, a deeply held belief that I was not as good as everybody else. I was extremely self-conscious and deeply self-critical as an adolescent and a teen, always afraid of standing out. Ever, ever careful, well, to not do anything, really. Not risk anything for fear of being embarrassed. In groups, I might have had something to say but rarely, if ever, actually offered it. Afraid and shy, choked by anxiety. I got sick to my stomach at the same spot almost every morning on the school bus as it neared the high school. The anxiety of the day ahead and its social terrors tying knots in my gut. I skipped the lunchroom, passing the lunch hour in solitude in the library or in the reading room because in the warped view of my low self-esteem, that seemed preferable to sitting alone in the cafeteria, my greatest fear, because then everyone would see I had no friends, or so I thought. What I didn't expect was how God's love would e eclipse my shame, making it as nothing, like a candle in the brightness of the noontime sun. This uh, seed planted in me by my parents, to their credit, and by my church, 
sprouted and grew and changed who I was. A seed found in scripture and brought to life by the Holy Spirit of God. And this was the seed, a deep-held belief, deeper than my anxiety and shame, a deep-held belief that I was a child of God, loved and worthy with a plan and a purpose. I spent many hours in my room as an adolescent and teen wrestling with what I perceived to be my collected inadequacies and weaknesses, but I also spent a lot of time reading scripture and in prayer, and in those moments, I knew with a certainty that God loved me, God had created me with a plan and a purpose. I was worth everything in God's eyes, and God was calling me to something greater than I could ever expect. I love the words of the hymn, The Summons, that's in our hymnal. You may know it by its uh, first line, Will You Come and Follow Me? It's number 726 in, glory to, in the Glory to God hymnal. We sang it uh, just a couple weeks ago. Uh, Will you come and follow me? And the words that capture the invitation and challenge that I internalized as an anxious adolescent are the words of verse 2. Will you love the you you hide if I but call your name? Will you quell the fear inside and never be the same? Will you use the faith you found to reshape the world around through my sight and touch and sound in you and you in me? This seed, this assurance that I was loved by God and by God's love was made worthy of love, this grew in me and changed me so that I could leave anxiety and low self-worth behind. God's love eclipses all shame. It is a promise and a reality that we are all invited to live into. If you have forgotten it this morning, let me remind you. You are a child of God. You are loved and worthy of being loved. Never mind any evidence to the contrary. God's love eclipses all that. Many thought that Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem was squashed and negated by his arrest and crucifixion at the end of that, that same week. One might likewise suppose that belief in a God who create, created and loves the world is challenged by the reality of suffering, by, by so much suffering in the world. And so Richard Dawkins, the famous atheist, uh, has said, considering the survival of the fittest evolutionary fight to the death, uh, Richard Dawkins has said, the total amount of suffering per year in the natural world is beyond all decent contemplation. In a universe of electrons and selfish genes, blind physical forces and genetic replication, some people are going to get hurt, other people are going to get lucky, and you won't find any rhyme or reason in it, nor any justice. The universe that we observe has precisely the properties we should expect if there is, at bottom, no design, no purpose, no evil, no good, nothing but pity, pitiless indifference. The fool says there is no God. Three years ago, you all remember, we celebrated Easter at the outset of a pandemic. You remember that? That weird, strange time. We live streamed our Easter services and thought, ah, maybe we'll be back to normal by Pentecost. <laughs> ha, yeah. Little did we know. It would be closer, of course, to two years and almost seven million deaths globally. 
I raise Richard Dawkins' objection this morning and the COVID moment again because it forced many of us and so many others, people outside the church, to look at the suffering of the world and wonder about any meaning behind it all. To wonder about the existence of a good God in the face of suffering and illness and indiscriminate death. Uh, questions we struggled with again this week when we wrestled with the reality of children shot dead at their school. We are in a moment like the disciples, in the midst of the agony of Christ's passion, when we don't have any answers. So we hold to our faith. We remember and recall the enduring love of the Lord. We have experienced God's freedom, God's liberating power, and the miracle of the Spirit in our lives and in our history. And because of that, we can stand in the face of suffering and believe that Easter is coming. Some question, where is God with so many dying and suffering in the world? And some respond, well, God is in the many acts of kindness and compassion shown in the midst of crisis and in the face of suffering Here's a simple story told by a trucker friend. Uh, the suffering servant is the king, part three. This happened back at the beginning of the pandemic when we were all wondering uh, how we were ever gonna survive that difficult time, remember? Myron starts his story uh, this way, sharing on Facebook about three years ago. Uh, he, he begins, he says, so we got the 54 feet of sewer systems loaded onto the 53-foot trailer. No good place for my personals to ride, including my lunch. It's all back at home, strapped to my toolboxes and truck frame rails. Sweaty and tired and hungry, Arby's wouldn't let me walk the drive through So remember, these were the early days of the pandemic when cities were shut down and dining rooms were locked tight and you were lucky to even find a drive-through that was open, but if you had a 53-foot trailer, <laughs> you weren't getting through the drive-through. So Myron figured, I'll just find a middle-aged blue-collar guy in a beat-up pickup truck and give him the money and tell him what I wanted. Hmm. He says, guess all the, the blue-collar guys are still working. First non-work truck pickup wouldn't even put down the cell phone or roll his window down for me. Next was a late model minivan with a well-dressed woman playing home school teacher while her two kids, uh, future veter veterinarians maybe, were trying to dress a very patient Labrador retriever in sunglasses and a Steelers cap. Figured I'd wait for the car behind her. She had enough <laughs> on her hands. But to my surprise, she rolled down her window and asked if I needed anything. I said, uh, I was wanting an Arby's, but I couldn't take my rig to the drive-thru. Could I just give you the money and have you get it for me? Sure, she said. Chicken cordon bleu, I said. Keep the change, and I handed her a $10 bill. Met her on the other side where she handed me my bag and drink. Thanks, I said, and then she drove off. Back in the truck, I opened my bag, my cordon bleu and fries and my $10, and two cookies for dessert. The woman was long gone, but I think we're gonna be all right, is how Myron ends. Whatever it is that you are facing this morning, let me assure you, God's love is stronger 
God loves you. Maybe you feel low, maybe you feel worthless today, but God loves you. Uh, maybe you feel bad because of a, a missed job opportunity, some failure you may carry with you this morning. Hear this and know it to be true. Uh, God loves you and in God's eyes you are precious and wonderful. Maybe you feel low, not because of what you have done, but because of who you are. Hear this and know it to be true. In God's eyes, you are precious, and God has wonders in store for you that you could never imagine. We are all afraid and anxious because of the state of the world. We're sad and disappointed and angry because the world is still so damn broken. Maybe you face death and loss of a friend, of a a loved one, maybe your own mortality weighs heavily on you today. Hear this and know it to be true. Death itself cannot contain God's love. The powers that be figured that Jesus' story, it would end with him hung up on the cross to die. It would end in shame and dishonor. But God's love is stronger than death and God will raise Jesus Christ to new honor and he will truly be the Messiah and Savior and King that the people desired, even if he wasn't what they expected. God's love eclipses our shame, eclipses even death itself. It's not that these things don't continue to exist. Shame and death are part of our world, but they have been eclipsed by God's love. When God sees us, God doesn't see the worthlessness that we may feel. God doesn't see the ugliness of what we have done. What God sees is a precious and wonderful child worthy of love and full of potential because God sees us through God's own wonderful and redemptive love. And God's love is not wrong. In fact, God's love is more right than our own feelings of insufficiency and shame. Who would have expected that? This movement is the trajectory of Holy Week, from honor to disgrace, then back to honor again. It rings true for me because I have experienced that moment, that movement myself, from what felt like death to new life. On Thursday night this week, when we gather to relive the grief and despair of the crucifixion, remember that God's love is stronger, and the king who was mocked will be the king indeed, worthy of all glory and honor. Thanks be to God. Amen. Please be seated.
usually when we come to time for the offering and we think about what we are grateful for in our lives, why we want to offer back to God, and we have many things to be thankful for, the beauty of creation, the wonder of friendship and love in our lives, opportunities for service. And we come to Holy Week, and really if we focus on what we have to be thankful for in Holy Week, we are simply amazed by God's love. And I hope you won't just skip from Palm Sunday waving branches to Easter and not consider all the things that happened in between. I hope some of you will come to Stations of the Cross. I hope you'll come to the Monday Thursday Reader's Theater drama um, where we slowly dim the lights and tell the story of Christ until we take the last candle out of the sanctuary. I hope that maybe you will find some quiet time in prayer this week to thank God for a love that is beyond measure. And so I also invite you when you leave the sanctuary today to leave your offerings to God in, in the receptacle there. Encourage those of you watching from at home to send in your offerings. But also to remember offerings isn't only about our money. It's about how we live. Let us give back to God every day in joy and in celebration of a love beyond measure. Amen. take communion this morning. Yeah, please be seated. Uh, we'll take communion this morning the same way we have been taking it uh, recently. So after the words of institution, we'll invite you to come up the center aisle and receive the cup and the bread from the servers here at the front and then to return to your seat around the outside and place uh, the cups in the receptacles on either side. If you'd rather receive communion in your seat, just raise a hand while we are serving and an usher will bring you elements and you can do that there as well. Clear as mud? All right. Friends, this is Christ's table. This is the Lord's table. It's not a Presbyterian table. It's not Southminster's table. This is Jesus.